Where Did the Road Go This Month is sponsored by two really awesome people, Super Inframan and Allison Cook. If you want to join them or just become a patron, wheredidtheroadgo.com. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And I am joined today uh, by Red Pill Junkie. Good evening, all. Who's back to being somewhat of a regular, which makes me very happy. Um, Vuk from the Tracing Owls podcast. Hello, all. And David Perkins, who is a longtime cattle mutilation researcher. Glad to be here. And uh, you guys are from all over the place on this podcast. Obviously, Red Pills from Mexico. David, where are you out of? Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay. And then Vuk? Bosnia and Herzegovina. I, I don't. Worldwide. Yeah. And where, where is that, Vuk? It's on the Balkan Peninsula. Okay. In Europe. It's amazing what today's technology can do. <laughs> All right, so tonight we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of catabulations. We're also going to talk about the Gaia hypothesis and how it applies to the paranormal. Oh boy! <laughs> and <laughs> where do we want to start with this? I'll, I'll start. I, I'd start out with a uh, little thumbnail sketch of the catabulations. All right, if, let's do that. Uh, I'm I'm not sure all your listeners are familiar with that this phenomenon, but uh, it, briefly, it's been going on since uh, the 1960s in the United States. Back to Snippy the horse, the famous case. Right. And it, it's continuing to this day in places like Oregon, Washington State, and Canada. Uh, and the basic uh, pattern is a cow, or usually a cow, sometimes another type of animal animal is found dead drained of blood with certain parts of its uh, body missing like uh, the sex organs the rectal area uh, the tongue an eye perhaps uh, and uh, some skin cut around the mouth of the mandible so it uh, it's a certain sameness to all not all identical uh, cases but that's the basics that whatever or whoever is doing it is not taking the prime meat it's uh, it's these organs that would have no practical use for culinary reasons that we know of. Yeah. So, uh, and we're talking about the, the, the common number that's floated around is eight to 10,000 of these cases in the United States since 1967. Uh, and I think that's fairly accurate. I, I counted them all up one day, uh, from all my files and books and everything. And I came to like 6,500, mm. uh, it was some time ago, actually. But so we know it's a bunch, I, and I think a lot, many of them don't get reported. I was gonna I, say, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. they just uh, people don't see any, any point in it because nothing ever happens. Nobody ever gets caught. The ranchers just say, "Oh, what's the point of report, reporting it?" So um, just recently, uh, it's the, the mutilations have entered back into the news, and I think uh, it's significant to the field of the paranormal and research. Uh, that it has made it surfaced again nationally. And this started with uh, basically NPR, uh, 
I guess it was two years ago now, picked up this uh, story of the uh, mutilations in Oregon. And it, it put out a, a really nice report, really well done, well reported. And uh, it was went nationwide on NPR. And suddenly a bunch of people got interested. And, you know, there was a lot of feedback pro and con. Uh from the listeners, some people say, well, that's fascinating. I've never heard this before, but this is what the heck's going on. And then another group would say, this is disgusting. How can NPR stoop such depths to cover such nonsense and so on and so on. So it's that's been the theme from the very beginning, actually. Yeah. Uh, and it divides people up into two camps of people either kind of believe that it's happening or they don't believe it's uh it's happening in terms of anything unusual. The, the usual explanation is uh, it's predator kills and that the ranchers are just in, in some sort of uh, mass delusion state and they don't can't tell the difference between a predator kill and something that was done precisely with a knife. So that's where we end up. But uh, uh, the reason I think it's interesting right now, especially, is because with all the, the current interest in UAPs and whatnot, and it's coming into the news and it's surfacing nationally, and, uh, I think the cattle mutilations are going to get pulled into that discussion sooner than later. Uh, it just It's almost guaranteed. And in fact, uh, it already has. Uh, I, I guess uh, two or three weeks ago, uh, Tucker Carlson did a show, a half an hour show, on the cattle mutilations specifically. He'd, he'd mentioned them on his show before, but he did a whole half hour and my colleague Chris O'Brien participated in that, was interviewed for that show. Mm. I was asked to be interviewed and then declined for several reasons, but uh, I did watch it and uh, it's really significant that goes out to millions of people. Uh, so it's, it's making some sort of comeback and it's, uh, it's going to get be part of the discussion and the conversation, like I say, I believe sooner than later, and people won't know what to do with it. Yeah, you know, like they've never, they've never known what to do with it all the way along. Well, Perhaps, it, se it seems like I, I had Chris O'Brien yeah. on back in like 2015 or so when his uh, Stalking the Herd book came out. Right. And his conclusion seemed to be like some of it was, you know, uh, human activity and some of it was unexplained. And I don't, I don't know how you, how you stand on that. But anytime you have something that has like multiple explanations like that, I think it really frustrates uh, people who want things just to have simple answers. True. Well, Chris and I vary a bit on that observation. I tend to think it's all of one club, all, you know, basically. And Chris sees multiple perpetrators and multiple uh, objectives. And I, I just don't see that. Uh, I, I, to some degree, I can, I can see it. A little bit of perhaps cult activity, uh, perhaps, and then uh, some vandalism here and there. Uh, maybe a few government experiments here and there. Uh, but it's just, you know, it, it reaches a certain point, eight to 10,000 cases later, and nobody has ever been caught or seen doing this. Uh, you know, it's, there are no tracks, there's no evidence, there's no nothing, there's no informers, there's no leaks, there's no whistleblowers. Uh, so I, I, it could well be uh, multiple actors involved, but I, to me, I think the core phenomenon, way in the 90 range is basically a paranormal phenomenon and okay. that's why it's kind of on our plate at this point All right. that we 
Well, it's just, I mean, I just have to had to reach that conclusion that is what is being reported and what I've seen. It's just I don't know of any human agency that could have done that uh, so successfully for almost 50 years and never a glitch, never one of those helicopters go down, nobody ever apprehended, right. no boy and his dog, no none of those scenarios, none. Uh, it just happens and that's that. And uh, so that's... I, it, it just pushes it further and further into the realm of the paranormal, and which is where I really see it at this point, is a straight-out paranormal phenomenon yeah. that we have to deal with accordingly. I, I, I remember Chris saying there was at least one case where the farmer shot at the helicopter, and the helicopter shot back, and that was like his way of going, okay, at least this case was probably yeah. people because you know whatever paranormal well, thing is probably not shooting bullets at us well that, there you go because you just don't quite know that you know uh nothing is what it seems it's a, you know yeah. alice in wonderland world here uh it seems like well with the mutilations for instance when they started heavily in the night around 1970 to 73 in the midwest there were a lot there were all these cases of, of uh Livestock rustling done by helicopters, supposedly, like massive amounts of animals, like a whole 50 pigs and stuff like that. They were supposedly disappeared at once, uh, right after um, farmers saw big cargo type helicopters. So, uh, it was, uh, you know, newspapers hit the, all over the Midwest. Um, wrestlers and helicopters are stealing livestock, but none of those helicopters were ever traced. They were unmarked. I don't, I'm not convinced that they're helicopters. Okay. I, don't, I think they're actually UFOs, whatever a UFO is. Uh, I have a, a few questions. And in terms of shooting, I mean, it's just, it, it's, uh, there are a few of those cases that are really colorful where people are having a gunfight with uh, whoever's in the helicopters. Uh, but I'm not, you know, people claim that they see beings, beings which they call aliens, uh, you know, in craft or out of craft or near craft or something or other. So I'm not so sure these are humans doing whatever is being said to have, ha have happened. So you see, it's just everything that you touch basically uh, disintegrates in your hand in terms of theories. Yeah. Especially if you if you take it on into the paranormal. Anything goes at that point. I was just thinking before the show, I think we ought to retire the word real. <laughs> <laughs> I don't disagree with that. And the, word, wanna... the word reality, because at this point, that's kind of meaningless to me. Real, uh, Real is anything that affects you. Right. Uh, I would yeah. say that reality is relativity. Yeah. 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 I wanted to ask you a few uh, questions, David. Like, uh, obviously, what you said is true uh, with regards to the cattle mutilation. We only get to the evidence after uh, the animals are killed and are, uh, you know, uh, cut and someone takes their, their organs out. Has anyone tried to ascertain like how what is like the shortest time that's ever been taken be between you know finding the animal and you know trying to ascertain how long were they killed in the field you know like uh, right. a matter of hours minutes well so there are cases that are a matter of minutes they've been found oh my god okay a matter of minutes and, and that's in the daylight even mm -hmm. uh there's several of those categories generally they happen at night it's true 
Yeah. But there are some daylight cases in which uh, people within minutes, uh, the cow was healthy in one minute, the rancher goes and does something for five minutes and comes back and the cow's lying there mutilated. Right. So a part of your question was how long would it take to actually do the, the uh, surgery, I call yeah, it, yeah. on the cow? Yeah, I was wondering and that, yeah. People tried to recreate that and uh, actually one fellow, uh, Los Alamos, on one of his own cows, tried to duplicate a mutilation. It took him an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and he said uh, he did it with all with a, a common hunting knife. And I don't know whether to believe that or not because he he wasn't exactly an honest broker in the whole scenario that was going on at that time. Mm-hmm. So uh, and then in the Tucker Carlson show, they had a couple of butchers uh, showing how difficult it would be to do a mutilation. I, it was very instruction uh, had great instruction for me in terms of uh, how they the tongue in particular how difficult it is to cut out the tongue and from the back of the mouth in a cow. Mm. They showed you would have to have two people, one person kind of prying the mouth open and holding it open, and the other one uh, getting back in there with a sharp knife, which you could, if you touched a tooth with that knife, it would dull it immediately. That's what they, the butchers were saying. Mm. And I, I've tried to pry those mouths open on some of those cattle, and it's really difficult, if not possible, uh, that have been dead for a while. But uh, uh, so... There's an exception to every rule, but I'd say in general, uh, I think most surgical type experiments have been about an hour and a half, basically, people trying to to recreate it. And so many of these cases, the people, whatever did the relation, did not have an hour and a half. They had only a matter of minutes, which there's, there's a whole school of thought that uh, they're not done on the ground. They're somehow right. wrapped up into a craft of some sort where they're operated on and then dumped back out uh, because that's, that would explain no tracks at the sites. So it's it's a just an incredibly elusive uh, situation here. And I, like, I've been working on this for 47 years. It's like my rancher friend next door always tells me, he's like, well, if it was simple, everybody would have figured it out by now. And as it <laughs> turns out, nobody has figured it out by now. And a lot of people have tried. A lot of people think they figured it out. Yeah. (laughs) Their data just doesn't hold up. Well, there's a whole school of thought that says uh, it's just all predator predators and misidentifications by deluded ranchers. Yeah. Uh, So that's the main drop back theory of the so-called authorities. Uh, That's the way they wanted to make it go away because this the mutilations challenge uh, authority basically uh, that's what they do mm-hmm. and, uh, and they they expose the weakness and uh, impotence of authority because they can't be caught so the authority uh, if you have something going on that's actually a crime in your neighborhood and you can't solve it that's not good if you're an authority true uh, not a good situation so you, the easiest way to get out of it is just say oh well it must have been predator killed and old farmer John just couldn't tell the difference that day. So uh, that makes it especially hard because this particular phenomenon is has sort of a stigma about it, I guess you could say, that uh, doesn't attract a whole lot of researchers, basically. And I'm trying. I was just thinking that in the field right now, it's pretty much down to me and Linda Howe in terms of people that have been in it from the beginning. Right. And everybody else has either died or just got frustrated with it or just gave it up on it entirely and quit the whole whole scene. So, you know, it, it wears on you after a while, but, you know, I'm just so curious about it now. It's just like, I, I can't 
give up on this until I have some sort of understanding of it that really makes sense. Yeah, that's it, why I, I, I sort of drifted toward theories like Gaia theory and other consciousness-based theories, you know, bottom line, because uh, the nuts and bolts approach to mutilations just was not uh, cutting it for me. What's being reported is much more in line with what's being reported with the UFOs and their occupants. Yeah. And yeah, cattle mutilations is always one of the ones that has left me really uh, perplexed, to say the least. Um, so how do, how, how do you tie those? Actually, why don't we do this? Vuk, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about the Gaia theory? And then how this will tie into cattle mutilations, among other things. Okay. So um, just right off the bat for the listeners, whenever we talk about the Gaia theory or Gaia hypothesis, I need to say that we're not talking about the Gaia streaming service. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, we are also ap- appropriating the name of a, a personification of Mother Earth. Um but we're uh, doing it in a different way, but also for what scientists would say is new age problem. So the Gaia theory was uh, proposed by James Lovelock. Uh, he started working on it in 1965, I believe. Dave, David would know this much better than me. Um, he proposed it officially in his papers in 1975 and 1979 via a book, Gaia, A New Look at Life on Earth. So what essentially is the Gaia hypothesis is the idea that the planet Earth itself is a living super entity or super organism. That would be the more mystical old school approach, because throughout the decades, the scientific community first rejected the hypothesis. I mean, it's named after a mythological figure, of course. Um, throughout the decades, they would turn the Gaia hypothesis into something which is now legitimized and called Earth system science. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying the planet Earth is a superorganism, it is rather, per science now, uh, a, a huge uh, cybernetic system. So it is what Valet has been referring to as a control system. And when Ravali says control system, it's not like, oh, they're controlling our minds and that conspiracy nonsense. It's essentially a cybernetic system, a huge conglomerated uh, system of feedback loops, uh, essentially a thermostat of life itself. So per the Gaia hypothesis, um, the living and non-living components of the planet uh, compose this living overarching entity, which we can call Gaia or the Earth system or whatever. But uh, the difference between Gaia hypothesis and, uh, let's say, classical uh, neo-Darwinism, per neo-Darwinism, life forms just react to changes in the environment, and that's that. They react, they adapt, and they cannot change their environment. But per the Gaia hypothesis, uh, everything that is planet Earth now is a product of co-evolutionary bonds being established between life and non-life, between the biosphere as, you know, all living organisms on the planet and the geology of the planet, their habitat. So essentially the habitat changes its, you know, environmental factors. This uh, makes the organisms adapt. They need to change in order to adapt to the new environment. But in changing and adapting, they also change their environment. So it is a constant battle between the living and non-living components of the planet 
throughout millions and millions of years, which have now uh, brought forth <coughs> Gaia, essentially, as the whole planet, as a super organism composed of everything living and non-living on Earth. So that's essentially what the Gaia hypothesis is. Okay. Good. Very good. Yeah. Does that imply, though, that the Gaia system wasn't in place at some point in the past, that it's evolved into a consciousness? So... Well, nobody calls it a consciousness in the scientific community. They want to say it is a cybernetic system. Right, it is right. a, a control system or a thermo, thermostat. Um, if you go into consciousness, you're, you're going into mystical New Age paranormal territory. But uh, how I see it, Gaia is essentially all life on Earth. Now, if we are talking about, let's say, two billion years ago when all life on Earth were just bacteria, then all bacteria would be essentially Gaia. But throughout the years, through the evolution of life and through life forms uh, diverging, adapting, and then changing their environment, and the environment then uh, changing them, and so on and so on, Gaia has now evolved into an all-encompassing system that has a lot of cards in play, you know? Two billion years ago, it had, let's say, bacteria as its only uh, genetic resources. But now, it has so many expressions of life, three million species on this planet, that uh, if anything were to happen to this living system now, it has so many diverse genetic resources that it can withstand almost anything almost any catastrophe. I mean, that that's the point of life, to adapt to its surroundings so it may diversify its gene pool, so it may have more cards uh, available to it in order to survive the most diverse changes in the environment. Okay. That's a good question on the consciousness, though. That's another one of those words that almost needs to be retired, I swear. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Uh, it's like, what is it? Where does it? come from what does it do what is it capable of doing when did it start with with so-called our earth gaia but the words that come to uh, um, to mind about what gaia does that seems to put it in the consciousness realm or, or it's purposeful it's uh sentient perhaps it's perhaps self-aware uh so these are starting to be terms that are used in consciousness studies or understanding of consciousness that it is has some it's sentient in other words right so that when it became uh what we call sentient i don't know when it maybe from the very beginning maybe halfway through when uh you know we uh, came out of the water and started walking on two legs at some point but and is this a, a process that goes on universally or is this just something that happened on this this one planet we still don't really know that uh, so that's uh, some people say when we go looking for, for theories about UFOs and whatnot it's like you have to exhaust every theory of a controlled system which is the earth at this point uh, before we start launching out into extraterrestrial territory so I don't think we've exhausted the, the so-called control mechanism that Luke is talking about and Ballet has mentioned the feedback loops that happen yeah uh, there, uh, and that is there's some what do you call that consciousness or not but it seems like it, there's it's very similar to what we call consciousness in ourselves you know with it has intent it has 
an agenda of sorts uh, that it uh, has the resources to attend to. Uh, it does a lot of things that we think of consciousness as doing. But since it's a one of a kind, uh, I'm not sure we can call it uh, planetary consciousness. It's it is what it is. It's the only one we know. It, that's why the neo-Darwinists hate the theory so much. Is that like Gaia can't be a, a, an organism uh, by itself because it didn't arise through natural selection, mm. and it's one of a kind. And so you know, it's there cannot be one unit in Darwinism. You have to be at least two units jockeying for resources and you know, strong survive and so on and so on. That keeps moving along the line with uh, beneficial traits being favored. And uh, that evolution proceeds. So the, basically, I think the neo-Darwinists just didn't like the mystical aspect that this obviously brings to the forefront. Yeah. And when Lovelock, as Book knows, when Lovelock put this theory out, immediately uh, it drew the attention of pagans. It was called, it was actually the critics call it a neo-pagan nature worship cult. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah, you mean we like nature? Okay. Uh, so, and it had sinister feelings about, about it in the press. Evangelical Christians didn't like it. Scientists didn't like it because of those mystical overtones. And that's when Lovelock really had to back off on it uh, in terms of speaking of it in terms of being sentient or conscious in any way. He totally had to back off. I think it was a calculated move on his part because what was happening was the environmental movement was springing out of this at that same time and using Gaia theory as, as one of its main springboards. So I think Lovelock said, well, it's actually doing quite a bit of good for the world in terms of developing environmental consciousness in the world. And so I'm not going to do anything to stop that process. I'm just going to stick with it as Earth system science and let the rest do what it does. And if, it, if people want to see it as a mystical entity, well, go ahead, let them. That means so I'm the earth and we we're poor yeah uh, i'm thinking for for the listeners like we should maybe explain how gaia is conscious and for with an example and what is a feedback loop what is a control system maybe people are not understanding the terminology so in uh, gaia and you look at life on earth this is one example that really resonated with me because i i studied biology and i was a biology teacher and I uh, actually did my bachelor thesis in fungi. So I was closely uh, studying fungi and also algae. Algae are a huge thing for me. In the book, there is this uh, uh, example of, let's say, h- how the earth knows to keep the concentrations of uh, different elements in the seas uniform throughout the years. Because uh, it is thought, let's say, certain chemicals get into the uh, ocean via rainfall. And how are they not accumulated in a way that through millions and millions of years, their concentrations just rapidly um, go way beyond beyond the threshold? What is uh, regulating this? So he uh, stated this example. Let's say there is a lot of silica in the oceans. You, uh, the ocean will be able to sense the uh, large concentrations of silica because the uh, diatom algae within it will exponentially reproduce and grow because they have a skeleton made of silica. So once you have a lot of silica in the water, these algae will bloom and incorporate the silica into their skeleton and because of their blooming, they will accumulate all of this, you know, silica within their bodies. 
and then they will die. And all this silica will fall to the ocean bottom where through millions of years they're uh, turned into sediments, you know, and they are essentially removed from the ecosystem of the ocean. So that's just one example of how an organism is utilized by this Gaia to uh, sense uh, changes in the environment and to act upon them. I remember uh, seeing years ago some experiment, I think it was done in Japan or something, in which they uh, were using amoeba in a petri dish or something, and they were trying to make the amoeba move or connect between different points using, uh, you know, some nutrients or something in order to make it move. And the thing is that the amoeba ended up replicating almost uh, exactly the connecting systems of the Japanese uh, subway train system, you know, in in a very efficient way. So that was, I mean, to me, what was very impressive because obviously, uh, you know, when when someone is designing something as complex as a Japanese, you know, as a train system, you're obviously using intelligence and creativity in order to come up with a, a solution that is efficient and effective. But here you have something that is devoid of any any kind of uh, intelligence, you know, an amoeba doesn't have any kind, doesn't even have a neuron and is replicating what an intelligent person did, you know, uh, almost to a T. So that to me, when I saw that, made me realize that it's very difficult at some point to try to ascertain whether something is the result of what we will call intelligence or what we will call, you know, unintelligent natural systems. <laughs> because in the end we're talking about i don't know at some point efficiency or intelligence is trying to come up with a solution that it is the most efficient energy wise you know in both time and resources and that is something that i feel that life does in a very you know instinctive way you know like our our hearts are not calculating, you know, how much energy they need to 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 waste in order to, you know, pump uh, red blood cells into our veins or something. That is just something that is natural. You know, obviously, otherwise we will be dead. And obviously, nature had mil- billions and billions of years into, you know, uh, by trial and error, I guess, natural selection in order to come up with the most uh, energy efficient solution. So I don't know. It's, it's to me that's interesting because we're talking about things like consciousness and sentience. And let's be honest, we really don't have a good good definitions for either of those terms. You know, what is consciousness? You know, what is sentience? You know, it's something that to me it's still very very difficult to try to understand if we are serious about it. You know, because people say, well, consciousness or sentience is well, we have the human being, as human beings are sentient, but book will say, well, that's taking an anthropocentric point of view. <laughs> and obviously, we'll do that because we're humans and say that we are we are the measures of, of all things. Hmm. 
So I wanted to add, because David mentioned how neo-Darwinists hate the Gaia theory because of um, their idea that everything needs to be a product of natural selection. And how I see Gaia is, in its first stages, it was an entity that was uh, formed by natural selection. But throughout the years as a super entity, like see it as a giant corporation of all life on this earth. It evolved to the point where it itself is natural selection. And what we now perceive as natural selection, is it natural selection or is it Gaian selection? Mm. Because if we are all uh, constituent parts of a superorganism, just as all your cells are constructing your body to maintain you as a system, as a whole, and if you are constructing a superorganism that you are a part of this whole planet, then all your behavior is uh, influenced by the planet for the purposes of the planet. Hmm. Yeah, well, Book and I have been tossing this idea back and forth about uh, Gaia wanting to procreate and using mm -hmm. human using humans as the vector, basically, to uh, procreate uh, Gaia on into the universe. And that, uh, if you look at uh, how things have progressed recently, uh, <laughs> it's it's quite possible that uh, that might it could be the case. The Gaia is like trying to fill up the void. That's what life does. If you look at what life does on Earth, it'll try to fill every single nook and cranny that's at all possible. I mean, it lives in volcanic, you know, scorching lava and it lives on out you know, in a vacuum and it'll just fill up everything so i i see the guy is just trying to bust out basically and mm -hmm. spread its spores basically basically to other planets or throughout the cosmos or who knows what maybe this planet itself was was uh seeded in that way from right. Way, way back, and these things we'll probably never know. But uh, but if you look at it in terms of Gaia kind of pampering humans along, knowing that uh, that would be its vector, or you know, grooming humans to be the vector to spread the spore of Gaia, and by in doing that, you end up with phenomena that sways culture and directs it toward a space bearing civilization imagery that uh, propels it on in that direction. Uh, so therefore, that it's it's shown itself in uh, science fiction and movies and comic books and TV shows and calendar relations and. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to add, like as a biologist, I am not just pulling all this stuff out of my butt. You know, there is a biological <laughs> basis to all of this. So what David has said now, the idea that Gaia wants to utilize us as vectors to essentially spread its seed throughout the universe. So in, in biology, all life forms invest most of their energy and resources into creating sex cells, essentially, or seeds in, in plant life. All your life uh, is uh, invested in accumulating resources so you may produce what you will spread around to, to reproduce. This is in all sexual life forms. So uh, when somebody tells us, like, why, why is Gaia allowing us to essentially screw over the planet, cover it in concrete and whatever, I see it as our behavior is influenced by Gaia for a Gaian purpose. If we are doing this and if Gaia is allowing us to do it, and surely if it is, you know, an overarching consciousness, it can delete us at any moment if, if she wants. 
maybe there is a purpose to this. Maybe mm. she is investing all of her resources into her seeds, into her children, us chosen ones. Um, so we may uh, develop a human consciousness and creativity and inspiration and art. And so she may uh, incorporate, let's say, archetypal symbols and imagery into our minds during evolution. So she may entice us with, say, lights in the sky. Uh, so we may uh, get the idea, hey, maybe there is something out there and maybe we should go and explore that. And in doing so, wherever we go, we carry with us with us uh, the essential components of Gaia, the essence of life. Not, not us, but germs. Germs are the uh, essence of life. Yeah. A, a microcosmos that we often forget exists. I mean, you, you could argue that that has already happened. Like, for example, whenever NASA sends another rover to explore the surface of Mars, there's never a 100% guarantee that those uh, instruments, those robots are perfectly yeah. sterilized whenever they reach the surface of the planet. You know, the NASA engineers acknowledge that there is a slight chance that a, a small number of bacteria, Earth bacteria, will manage to survive the long sojourn between Earth and Mars and manage to reach into the surface of Mars. Of course, they think, well, they will more than likely be killed by the inhospitable uh, atmosphere on Mars, uh, the cosmic rays and whatnot. But obviously, there, there, there is a slight possibility that some of those uh, bacteria could actually thrive in Mars at one point. And especially if we eventually go to Mars and terraform it, we think we will be terraforming it for ourselves, but we are terraforming it so we may farm the essence of life in germs and algae and fungi in everything that we carry with ourselves. And also we carry with ourselves all of these, you know, archetypes and symbols ingrained into our collective unconsciousness, ingrained into our minds for the purpose of just uh, keeping us moving forward. Not for ourselves, we think it's for ourselves, but it's for the purpose of the collective consciousness of Gaia that we are a part of. It's like, like like all your cells in your body are not aware that you exist. They live their right. own lives thinking that they are the most grand things, you know. Huh. But uh, if you look at the big picture, they are all doing a certain job to keep you as a closed system functioning. Right. Well, you know, there's another way you could look at it, I suppose. Actually, it's the way I started looking at it back about 1980, which was uh, you could take Gaia totally out of the picture and just say, Okay, it's humans that realize we've got to get off the planet and that we, our collective unconscious, uh, which we, I think, agree exists among humans, uh, creates those symbols and all the same things we've been talking about Gaia doing. It, it's just that we haven't, we both not, we now under, understand that we could be wiped out by an asteroid any second. We, uh, we want to spread ourselves out to make sure our human race is perpetuated so that we go through all these you know machinations of priming ourselves to be a space bearing civilization through our culture so it could in other words i'm just i could drop this guy thing out of it and just say okay it's back to a Jungian point of view where he's he's looking at uh, this ufo reports and saying oh 
those have got to be uh, materialized psychisms. And, and I've forever pondered uh, what a materialized psychism is. Uh, but he's basically saying that our human consciousness can generate something that is quasi-real. I don't think he yeah. used the word quasi, but uh, maybe he did. Uh, so, but I, th- I still think, that, you know, the further I looked at that, I thought, well, wait a minute. We're actually part of another organism that has, a, you know, uh, is using us for certain purposes and cultivating us. And uh, what it has in mind, other than just spreading its, its seed, whether it has an aspect of, you know, wanting to develop our so-called souls or our creativity or our, uh, any of the things Luke is, is talking about there, then it gets more slippery. You know, I like it. I like that kind of talk. It's really... Okay, it, so I am going to go into very woo territory now. So recently I did an episode with a buddy who is an artist and I titled it Imaginal Offerings. And I had the idea, you know how we offered, uh, say, foods back in the old days to Faye? Now food is plentiful and we're throwing it away. It's not a sacrifice. What if we are uh, providing the Faye or the other or Gaia even imaginal offerings in the form of creativity and art? And the more we went into the discussion, the more I got this idea Maybe we are channeling creativity from a higher consciousness, like a muse in the old days. Or I'd say it's a Gaian consciousness. But what would be the purpose of Gaia uh, channeling creativity to us and sparking uh, inspiration? And the more I think about it, uh, Gaia has reached the threshold of biological physical existence and is now investing its time and resources into us as superconscious beings. We are superconscious beings who can tap into an abstract form of existence. And the point of evolution of life is to open up new dimensions of existence. This is something in biology called uh, ETIs or evolutionary transitions in individuality. You know, you have single-celled organisms and they group together into colonies and then specialize and form multicellular organisms then you have multicellular organisms forming colonies and forming superorganisms like, say, a Gaia. But, say, there are examples, a whole termite mound is an organism for itself. Yeah. And the uh, termites, as well as all the microbiota, act together as a whole unified system. Uh, where, where was I getting at? So. Um, If Gaia is forming, let's say, a human consciousness that is able to tap into an imaginal realm that transcends biological, physical existence, then surely Gaia wants to play in that playground. So Gaia would be providing us creativity and inspiration so we may create the playground for itself. So we may manifest this, uh, let's say, collective unconsciousness. So Gaia may have a larger imaginal playground to play in and to influence us as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty woo. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I mean, that's that's what this phenomenon is so good for. And thinking about this and the mutilations and all of it it just really stretches the limits of human comprehension basically and it, and you just pound your head up against that wall sometimes and try to break through and gain a few inches here a few inches there of understanding and it's it's really hard work in general and it's also fun and interesting too but uh back to the homage thing uh, guy uh 
uh, may want homage paid to it somehow. That's kind of along the line of what Chris O'Brien talks about with the mutilations. That uh, he's he's researched the whole aspect of sacrifice to the gods, blood sacrifice, animal sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, so, in a way, you know, if you look at mutilations, uh, it could be viewed as uh, what used to be given freely to the gods uh, to appease them is now taken by them since we won't give it to them. I mean, that's that's pretty woo in itself. But nonetheless, you still have what he keeps, uh, Chris keeps hammering us on is this is a blood-based phenomenon that we're dealing with at heart. So once you take that into consideration, there's a whole uh, a line of history that goes back into prehistory as far as we could possibly trace it of humans' interaction with cattle. And the cattle are basically responsible for civilization if you really look at it a certain way and, and books yeah. have been written in that uh, vein. And now they're going to be responsible for the destruction of civilization because they're eating up 73% of the arable land on the whole planet. It's yeah. devoted to either growing grain for them or grazing them or whatnot. It's like, wait a minute. They went from you know, being a, the nurturing entity for all of humanity to being the most destructive element on the planet. And this is where Lovelock came out with his three C's. The most serious threats to Gaia were cows, cars, and chainsaws. Right. So he, you know, the Lovelock comes around the concept that cows are actually the most deadly menace to Gaia. So they're here they are cut up in a field. How are you supposed to interpret that, right? So David, I wanted to ask you this like at the beginning of the episode, and I don't know if anybody asked you this this uh, in cattle mutilations, is there an element of say posing the bodies to send a message? Ooh, well, that's a yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh I noted this from the beginning. I've written about it, uh, a few articles here and there, about the theatrical aspect. And so, in other words, whatever is happening to the cattle, whatever forces behind that could just as well have humans never even notice that anything was wrong. That, you know, they could just disappear the cow, they could incinerate it, they could take it somewhere where it would never be found. So it's almost like they're placed purposely to communicate. And Barbara Fisher went into this aspect of it also. Mm -hmm. That this is, is uh, Gaia's form of trying to communicate with us and uh, through this language of the mutilated cow and other phenomena, perhaps. So that's an interesting way of looking at it, that uh, there is a communication going on. But the theatricality, to me, fits back into... Uh, trickster lore, and I'm, I'm very big on that because I think tr the trickster is actually uh, a biological force. It's not, which gets characterized by the culture that it's working in. And in our culture, it's okay, little green men and flying saucers or whatever. But uh, it'll it'll do what it does, and it, its its purpose is sort of like Gaia in terms of to maintain homeostasis in the human society the way Gaia does on Earth. So if one thing is getting too far out of control, then the trickster steps in. I think that's what Ballet was talking about, and Terence McKenna has talked about that also. And one way of thought gets too out of control, the trickster enters the picture and flips the table, and then everything reconfigures in a new and more robust way. So right. in that sense, it's, the trickster is a biological entity, and I, I envision it as basically a force field, like a morphogenic 
force field of some sort that inhabits uh, where it needs to inhabit and, and materializes and manifests. Two words that I really lean on a lot, but I probably shouldn't. Uh, but uh, even the physicists use those words about the particles they find in CERN. They say it manifests and it, it materialized. Right. And then it disappeared. So anyway, back to the theatricality thing. I do see that uh, as as part of uh, part of the deal. Uh, not always, but it seems like the, sometimes just the way they're arranged or certain things about them just seem like you know the joke's on us, and uh, it's unmistakable. And, and then once you st- start seeing them that way, you start seeing them all all of them that way, and it's like, well, what is this thing telling? Is it telling it to me individually, or is it? It must be if I don't if I don't ever tell anybody about it. it just it's a personal communication, I suppose. Yeah, but, but that's a, getting into some weird territory right there too. But it begs the question, you know, what has been the result of these uh, weird communication after 40 plus years of cadmium yeah. mutilation? What has been, uh, have you seen any kind of uh, effect produced by the mutilations aside from, I guess, uh, small small ranchers, you know, pe- people who own just a few cattle heads? going out of business because they, they, they lose yeah. so many cows that they can't keep up? Well, that's that's a great question because uh, that, and I've wondered about that over and over and over. What, one thing that I did see fairly recently uh, was an indicator and it was uh, there were a group of mutilations in Georgia, a place that had very few of any mutilations back in the back in the day. And it was a small community in north uh, east Georgia. Had several mutilations, and the, the newspaper covered it. Kind of, uh, uh, it was pretty straight ahead, actually, without excessive uh, theorizing. And then the letters to the editor, though, were the thing that got me, because t- over and over again, the letters were like, "Well, we shouldn't be raising cows in the first place." And I'm glad they got mutilated. We should be vegans, and cows are ruining our our atmosphere and our earth, and on and on. Anti-cow. Mm. This is a part a small farming community. It's like, where are these people getting these ideas? I mean, that's something you might get in, you know, the big city uh, progressive areas, you know, that you might hear people talking like that, but not in rural Georgia. So I thought, well, they're looking at that mutilation and the, and they're saying, well, that's really tough. We're sorry for the farmer, but they shouldn't have been raising cows in the first place because they're terrible for the environment. But then on the other side of that coin, you go to Oregon, and I've studied that now closely and looked at their letters to the editor, and they're just completely bonkers. It's like, okay, these cows are being injected with these uh, weird psychedelic drugs, and the cultists <laughs> drain the blood, and then they get all crazy and do these rituals. and. And uh, so they're all, all way into the cultist angle and the satanic cults. And then, oddly enough, the authorities are into the UFO angle <laughs> and the hmm. and the vet. They're saying, well, what else could it be besides UFOs? It's like, what? That's the sheriff talking. Uh, so. <laughs> well, I'd say there is some archetypal thing going on there because authorities, essentially their job is to uh, have somebody out there that they can catch. Exactly. So what else would they uh, think of than, say, aliens out there that yeah. we should go after? Okay. That's a good point. Good point. Yeah. That's that's better than saying we have no idea. It's just like, well, it's, it's got to be UFOs, and we, we all know there's nothing I can do about that. You know, yeah, exactly. They, gonna can, they can wash their hands and say, well. Yeah. So it's also it as good an excuse as saying it's deluded ranchers, except that's so insulting to the ranchers yeah. in the small right. compu- uh, communities that they might just take the UFO out on that one. 
the, 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 the issue I see, though, is that when you're blaming UFOs, we don't know what UFOs are either. Right. That's a, a double whammy right there. Yeah, so you're, you're using uh, one okay. mystery to explain another mystery. Well, here, here's something that just fascinates me no end. Is, uh, I work a lot with memes, you know, the old style memes, not just little things on TikTok or something. But uh, it's an idea that gets carried and passes through the culture and, and influences the culture in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But the one that's now has prevailed so strongly in recent times is, is a cow being uh, sucked up into a flying saucer. And if mm-hmm. you're on the right. lookout how it's used in advertising, it's used all over the place, T-shirts, lamps. I used it. I'm sure you've seen it. Chris O'Brien and I collect, it, collect all those things. And, yeah. and the one that finally got me was the, the sign for Roswell, New Mexico, UFO Central. Uh, they commissioned this uh, sculpture for the gate, you know, the entrance to Roswell on the road. And what it is is a uh, metal flying saucer up on, you know, raised up and be- with a cow being sucked up into the bottom of the flying saucer. And it's like, now this, okay, so Roswell is the you know, UFO central, and now they're going to link cow disappearances, at least, into mm-hmm. uh, the UFO meme, and it becomes a super meme and part of a giant memeplex of extraterrestrial visitations and so on. So when those things get linked up like that, they just don't get unlinked. And as a matter, a matter of fact, when Tucker Carlson did his show recently, he, the bottom line on that show was it starts off with uh, that particular meme of UFOs. Uh, it's a painting of UFOs hovering in, in an overfield with uh, cows being sucked up in beams of light. Now, they're not necessarily being mutilated, but that might be implied. Mm. And then the very last word in the program is aliens. So... You know, it's subtle stuff that the culture picks up and digests it in various ways and runs it around in their brain and thing, you know, applies their own imagination to it. And uh, it drives the meme and the meme drives the process. If that process is getting off the planet and preparing ourselves to do that, mm-hmm. then it would be successful and Gaia would win. <laughs> okay, no. So that, that all ties into something I, I wanted to share briefly. Uh, that and was a, uh, it also. It also ties to the to the trickster element that you said. Um, so I've been I'm somebody who has been pondering about biology and the meaning of life forms for 30 years since I was a little child. And we all know that everybody wants to think that sex is, you know, the, the point of life, just reproduction and, and sp- spreading oneself. But the more I think about it, the point of life is expression and reproduction is just a necessity to maintain the species, to maintain the ability to express oneself. Now, if expression is not an innate need of the cosmos and of life itself, then why does life evolve? Why does it change? Why does it diversify into so many different forms? And now we have evolved to a point where we are no longer just expressing ourselves biologically, but we are expressing ourselves psychologically, sociologically, uh, creatively, and as you said, memes. Y- you said in one podcast, David, like even Darwin realized why, uh, that humans have a much bigger brain than they should naturally. And you yep. said that we use our large brains as carriers of memes. So nature essentially incorporated this idea of uh, expression in our biology. 
Well, the question too is, you know, if if creativity and and art and stuff is not important, why is it so hardwired into our brains? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's important. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. You can go to wheredidtheroadgo.com for everything Where Did The Road Go related. All the links to our social media, our Twitter, Patreon, YouTube, Facebook, Discord, everything. Everything is up there, as is every show since the very first show in January of 2013. You can download them all. There's plenty of other material to look through as well, and it's all at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Follow us on Facebook, join the Facebook group, join the Discord, talk to us. If you want to contact me, the three main emails are contact at wheredidtheroadgo.com for general things. Stories at wheredidtheroadgo.com if you want to send us some stories for our listener stories show. Booking at wheredidtheroadgo.com if you want to come on the show because you're an author or a researcher and want to talk about your work. Those are the best ways to get in touch. I want to thank everyone that listens to this show, that is hearing this, uh, that has supported us in any way. And I particularly want to give a shout out to those Patreons pledging $10 or more. Chuck Shutters, Leanne Cherry, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, CJ, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Christine, a blue second-gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy Incommunicable, Christopher Ernst, Craig Parmenter, Diane B., Edu Camahort, MTK, Eric Todd, James Lattimore, Jim Pyre, Joanna Rojas, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linz Jackson K., Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Patricia W., Paul Jeffries, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupree, Sam Sharon, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Stephen D., and Amber Hall. Also a special extra shout-out to Vincent Trewell, who does all the recaps of the shows that get posted on the website and YouTube. I thank you all so very, very much. This show would not be what it is without you. You're listening to Where Did the Road Go? I have as my guests tonight Vuk, Red Bill Junkie, and David Perkins. Now let's continue this conversation. Getting back to that uh, and the idea of the meme of the cow being sucked into uh, the tractor being of the flying saucer. I mean, we all, we've all seen all these uh, old paintings from medieval times or the Renaissance or even maybe before that. I mean, all, all this thing that is uh, shown at nauseum at ancient aliens of things that the people say, well, that kind of looks like a flying saucer or something, you know, something weird in the sky, uh, shining, or whatever. I was just wondering what is like, is there some kind of like example 
from antiquity that is similar to the meme of the cow being mutilated or being sucked in by the flying saucer? Mm. No, nothing really comes to mind of that exact meme. Uh, I can trace it back to science fiction, uh, back to the 1930s, basically, is where the first Im image that I've ever seen of a okay. flying saucer, which is interesting that it was a flying saucer and not some mm -hmm. other type of alien craft, but it was a flying saucer sucking up a cow. It was mm -hmm. from a, a 19 1930s illustration for a science fiction book. I'm not, don't remember which one, but uh, I've used it before in lectures and whatnot. But in terms of that actual meme, uh, no, I, I mean I, I can't think of any anything similar to that. I mean, right now, uh, right off the bat, uh, and obviously this, we're not talking here about uh, animal mutilations, but I can recall that passage in the book of Exodus in which Moses tells the, the Israelites that they need to put uh, on the top of their, uh, above their, the entrance of their homes, blood from a, you know, a freshly uh, slaughtered uh, calf or something, I think, or, or a lamb. So that will be a mark for uh, the exterminator angel that will come by into the into Egypt. That will be the mark for the angel to pass by. And after the angel came, you know, all the firstborns of Egypt, not only, I think not only uh, men, but also firstborns of every species were slaughtered. You know, I mean, I guess that that's one example of uh, yeah. an anomalous mutilation. Well, I mean, there are examples of like the rapture where people being ascended, you know, but not animals. Yeah. Ascensions are well, fairly common through history. But uh, yeah, in terms of the cow, it's fairly recent. Well, uh, let, but, let me ask you this. That image of the, the cow being sucked up into the spaceship, did has there ever been a cattle mutilation report where someone has seen that? Mm. Yes. Okay. There have been. Did the, uh, and there are, there, most of those are, are problematic cases, I will say. Okay. Uh, they're, they're, they just have, I was looking at them, some of them last night, as a matter of fact, uh, but two, two in particular, which were the two abductions, uh, Judy Doherty and Myrna Hansen, that happened uh, back in the 70s, in 1980 for Hansen. Anyway, they both uh, saw a cow or a small animal like a cow being uh, drawn up in a beam of light into a craft. I'm not sure they described it as a saucer, but they called it a UFO, I believe. But uh, I don't think they saw any details of it, but they both were stopped at night in these circumstances, somehow floated out of their car, floated up into these craft and examined. And uh, in both cases, uh, they witnessed the mutilation by some apparent aliens on the craft. So mm -hmm. you've got those two cases of the beam of light. It's, it's, it's rare. There are other ones, too. There's a, a, an elk case that's very good and a few other ones of things being sucked up into the cow into the craft it's just because because something gets sucked up into the craft doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get mutilated right I, it's a fun right. point I, well, and I, i've got this little lamp that came from australia and it's got a storybook that goes with it and it's saying something like it's for kids and it's like okay kids this this cow isn't going to get mutilated it's going to be fine on the planet moo where the aliens are taking it, where it's going to lead to a long and happy life with other 
of its friends and be good friends to our. <laughs> that our goes race. into Noah's Ark territory, and That's that right. is a huge motif in alien abduction stories. Well, that I just. It's this little booklet for kids because it was ostensibly marketed as a kid's lamp of a cow in this plexiglass beam, you know, being sucked up into this flashing light flying saucer. But I, I would buy that for their kid. I, I guess it's pretty interesting, but it seems weird. I, I guess my point was, though, the meme of it existed before anyone actually witnessed it. Well, debatable. Um, well, you said the first graphic was uh, like back in the 1930s. Yeah. And what's the earliest uh, report of someone actually seeing a, a cow raised up into a craft? Well, now that you mention it, I think it would be 73. Yeah. Uh, where that that came along. So, but there was a lot of stuff going on. There was this kind of interplay between what were being described as helicopters and what were be, being described as classic UFOs slash saucers. Right. Mm. So, uh, but in terms of things actually in the air being sucked up into them, the first one that comes to mind is 1973 in Texas. You so, know, there was, there was this one off. case, this one case that happened in, in, in Bolivia that I want to mention because we were talking before how mutilations, uh, the animals are always uh, found after you know they are killed and, and cut up and 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 ranchers never actually see the perpetrators but that's not actually the case with with this uh, event that happened in bolivia i, I want to say in 1967 i guess uh, and there's this case of an indigenous woman that actually found when he went she went to uh, the pen where they kept her their ship and she found this uh, almost like a leprechaun, this dwarf uh, with uh, very pinkish skin, and sh and she said that he she he had a, a reddish beard, and the dwarf was slaughtering her sheep with something that looked like a knife, you know, right right in front of her, and and uh, there was also actually like some something like a very shiny net that was covering the top of this uh, pen that was made out of, uh, I don't know, uh, like a, like a uh, rock wall or something. And the story goes that uh, the woman started to wrestle with this, uh, <laughs> with this dwarf uh, uh, and, and she almost killed kill him oh. uh, and the get poor guy had to like uh, escape she he flew with with some kind of like device that, that, that uh, attached to his uh, back some kind of like uh, it wasn't a jetpack because he actually had some kind of like a rotor like a kind of like a small uh, portable helicopter but that was I guess the one case in which the witness saw the perpetrator mutilating the animals yeah. in front of their them yeah yeah, there you go. Wow. Well, I didn't mention in my overview that uh, South America is rich in, in cases that, you know, yeah. aren't very, very, very well documented, I should say. And mm -hmm. uh, what is in uh, the main places we're looking at are the United States, of course, Canada, heavily hit, uh, Australia, um, and then we move into Argentina, Argentina, and then to a lesser degree, the other South American uh, countries, and to a lesser degree, the Central American countries, including Mexico. <coughs> 
Seems, yeah. Seems very also, likely. Uh, Bra- Brazil, uh, do you know of the mutilated man in the Billings Reservoir? Yeah, I know the story. And uh, do you know of the Chupa Chupas, <laughs> the UFOs that were sucking blood from people, also yeah. in Brazil? Yeah, well, the Chupas have showed up in uh, mutilation cases in Puerto Rico back in the 70s. That the animals were getting classically mutilated and the Chupacabras were running around on people's roofs. Uh, that's what they call them, Chupas. Uh, but uh, that's another line of uh, theatricality, perhaps. Yeah. And each culture gets kind of the, the scenario that they need. But I, I'm really intrigued by Argentina. So I think we're looking at hundreds of cases there. And, and their yeah. particular take on it is it's not helicopters, but it's classic UFOs seen in conjunction with the events. Right. But, but the newspapers really run with it down there. They, they, they've watched a lot of the X-Files, apparently. And they, they always bill it as something. Oh, straight, straight from the X Files in our backyard. The U.S. CIA is running around in our backyard testing their biological warfare weapons in our and you know in our neighborhood. It's like that CIA boy. That really, they really get around down there. <laughs> and there was this. There was this case, famous case, uh, uh, the Venado Tuerto case that was highlighted uh, in this recent documentary that is excellent. Uh, Testigo de Otro Mundo, Witness from Another World, uh, yeah. the story of Juan Perez that was investigated by Jacques Vallée himself when he visited Argentina. And the witness, Juan, uh, one of the things that that he uh, recalled when he was allegedly inside uh, the craft was he saw some kind of like uh, robotic entity cutting meat in some kind of like uh, metallic table. Oh, and one of the things that was wasn't mentioned in, in, in the documentary, but is part of the case is that his father uh, reported a missing a missing cow, oh. you know, before or, or not long after the event uh, took place. So, you know, it kind of like says, well, it, it's almost irresistible to put two and two together and say, OK, you have a, a missing cow and then yeah. you, you have a witness seeing an entity cutting meat that hopefully is it is uh, meat from an animal and not from some other source. Right. Yeah. Uh, what What do you think of the human mutilation claims, David? Have you seen anything that really stands up to scrutiny? No, I haven't. Uh, I just haven't. Um, I've seen a lot of photos, and I just think something else is going on there that's pr- uh, probably human yeah. induced. Uh, it's just, I don't have great information on any of those cases, and there's so few of them. Right. I've gone on some other podcasts a while back, and they say, we only want to hear about the human mutilations. I go, well, that's going to be a pretty short program, really. <laughs> uh, well, we want, to, we want to freak people out of their minds. People want to be scared. And it's like, well, okay. Uh, so I'm glad that you guys don't take that approach, and you're very no. thoughtful observations and your questions so i really appreciate that yeah the show is not about scaring people it's about getting the actual information and diving as deep as we can well you do a really good job i congratulate you and uh and i appreciate it so much because it's just uh, hard to get these kind of forums together to do this kind of work what uh so cattle being the common thing what do are you aware of other animals getting mutilated yeah, just about everything you can think of has been mutilated at some point or the other. And zoo animals and uh, just all pets, a lot of a lot of pets. 
Uh, a lot of horses. There's a wave in, in Europe uh, over the last couple of years of slashings. It centers on France. And it's, it seems very similar to what's going on with mutilations. It's almost as if it's the same force behind them because uh, behind situation because the animals are seen fine one day they the next morning they're all they're cut and slashed and some reports say that there was delicate surgery done on them but in general they're trying to create the impression that somebody was just a crazy guy with a knife jumped in there and started slashing but i think mm-hmm. it was more methodical than that and they're not letting on and we're and they're messing around with a number of cases which is very typical well, what happens in the United States, in Colorado, for instance, uh, one summer this, we had 550 mutilations. But by the time the you know, Colorado Bureau of Investigation and everybody else got a hold of it, the state labs, and they, well, it's probably only like 20. And then next thing you know, well, it's actually 12. Well, maybe seven. Mm. So it's like, wait a minute, this number started at 550. <laughs> you know, uh, samples that were sent to you by sheriffs and vets and whatnot is now it's seven out of that are real yeah well you know that, that's just the way it breaks down that's like so in france they're doing the same same thing it started out as 90 and then it's i think it even started out higher than that you know maybe a couple hundred or something then it went to 90 then 50 then 20 so they're downplaying it again. Authority, as Vuk says, they don't want to be shown up. It's like, and then they floated this one story. It's like, well, the only theories that we have is uh, some swarthy-looking men of East European descent that were suspicious in the neighborhood. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on. Uh, uh, There's see. also this phenomenon that uh, Linda Moulton Howe mentioned a few times, just matter-of-factly. And it's become a meme among us uh, younger Fortean podcasters. She said that there are a lot of cases of cats being uh, essentially uh, ripped in half. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 The, well, back to that question. I, I've seen a pig that was cut in half across the belly in half that way. Oh. And uh, in somebody's driveway. And they said we had in the middle of the day and it had been perfectly fine earlier that day and, and there was nothing no tracks no nothing nothing was taken except it was cut perfectly in half it's like well what the hell is this yeah i, I imagine uh, that wouldn't be very easy to do under any circumstances right it's just uh, but the, the cats uh, a lot a lot of cats not so many dogs but definitely cats uh mm. and zoo animals uh, uh and just about everything you could think of one time or another got mutilated uh you know the, the, the animal in the zoo in cheyenne zoo the one buffalo in the herd got mutilated and that's right next to norad and there was a mutilation found at the gate of norad around the same time it's like sending a message much yeah uh, mm-hmm. so it's uh so that's why i think it's a trickster game a lot and i i treat it that way that i know i'm probably going to get tricked and get sucked into it somehow and have my mind befuddled which is exactly what has happened but it's it's a delightful kind of befuddlement it's okay do you do you want is there anything else you want people to know about this that we didn't cover well just kind of pay attention uh i'm not suggesting everybody dive in and become a cattle mutilation investigator but i think people need to look at it a little closer i mean i know it's repulsive and people tend to pass it over. I see that happen on Facebook and other places. People are like, oh, I'd rather not think about that. Oh, I don't know. That's right. too weird. Mm-hmm. So it may be too weird. Yes. Okay. But it's kind of maybe may too weird by design. It's, uh, it seems to have a method to it to, to keep people away from it, except for very, very few people who really go after it, who are kind of crazy. So, and then spread the word that this is happening. And uh, the media has been all over it, basically, for 
for a long time because it sells newspapers because it's just so weird. But, it, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, and it happens in flaps, too, right? Yeah, it does. And I, I find it interesting that it's flapped back up again. Uh, and that's because of, the, I think, mostly because the NPR show uh, and um, that it, people got really interested in it. And, the, and now some friends of mine in Portland are making a documentary film. It started off, it was just going to be Oregon. Now it's branched out into the whole United States. Another group of friends in L.A. are making a film about uh, the mutilations in the 70s and 80s, partly. And uh, so these are both documentary filmmakers. And it's, you know, if you turn on TV and you watch Skinwalker. Uh, the Ranch thing. First, the first, first image mm-hmm. that you get when you watch that show is a mutilated cow face. Yeah. And the, and the word mutilation. <laughs> so it's like okay you got me there uh so it'll it'll suck you in but uh i think uh from what i can gather there have only been two what i would call possible mutilations since uh Hugel took over the ranch up there and they started doing the show mm. uh, so and before that when the shermans were there i think there were some of several authentic ones that nids documented very well right right especially the one where they were right down like you know half a field away or whatever yeah, yeah, there's that. But uh, I just like people to pay a little more attention to it. I think it's significant. And uh, like my buddy Chris keeps saying, there's nothing else in the paranormal realm that provides this much evidence. Yeah. I course, mean, yeah. we've got yeah. all this peripheral, ephemeral stuff that just shows up. A little bit of this, a little bit, a little of that, a track here, a track there, a scorch mark. This is just over and over and over. 2,000 pounds of evidence just plopped down in our face. Okay, you want evidence? Here's some evidence. Like, uh, yeah, that's a bit more than we actually needed. Um, so uh, I think that's significant. And, and where, where can people follow you online and such, David? Oh, I hide out. I just completely hide out. Okay. Did you, you do write for for you do publish some papers here and there i i do and uh you can google those and, and find most of those papers and uh i write you know like all the forwards to chris o'brien's books five of those long forwards and magazine articles and newspaper articles uh i won an award for colorado press association a while back for covering uh mutilations in an area in colorado so people do kind of perk up and pay attention. I was really surprised that the Colorado Press Association is very conservative. I just had no idea that mm. I would win in that category. Uh, it was a continuing series investigative reporting award. Uh, so anyway, there, that stuff's all floating around out there, but it's not in one place. But Chris and I are working on a book right now, and it, it will all be in one place soon. Nice. All right. And Vuk, where can people find you and your podcast? So I do a podcast named Tracing Owls Podcast. It's essentially an audio blog about 14 philosophy. And uh, you can find me on Instagram at Tracing Owls. All right. Well, I thank you all. Yeah, that was fun. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting show. All right. Well, it was a pleasure having you on, David. Yes. And keep up the good work, you guys. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us. It's a good thing. Real good thing. There is a Patreon segment that goes along with this show. Although David Perkins could not stick around with us, Vuk and Red Pill and I have a very interesting conversation to follow this. If you're a patron, you'll get it soon. If you want to become a patron, it's only $3 a month, and it helps us continue to do this show. So if you like it, help us out. 
And if you can't uh, afford it, you know, spread the word. Give us a good rating on whatever podcast you're on. Everything is appreciated. We're going to take you out with something from $50 Dynasty, which is a, the band that both members, Russ and Kyle, of the Brothers of the Serpent podcast uh, are a part of. They have a new album out, and uh, there's an album called Procession. I mean, big shock, considering the content of their podcast. And uh, we're going to hear Eternum. This is the opening track on the album. It is totally free at their website, at uh, $50 Dynasty's website. Just give it a Google and everything is downloadable. I believe they may be putting it up on Bandcamp soon as well. So here you go. I'll see you next time.
have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support. Are you fascinated by UFOs, the occult, strange history, and more? On October 14th through the 16th at SIR Nashville, the Strange Realities Conference 2022 will take place. Three days of exploring the mysteries of the supernatural, history, UFOs, the occult, and much, much more. Featuring presentations by Steve Berg, Micah Hanks, John Tinney, Adam Gorightly, Tim Banal, Christopher Ernst, Samantha Engel, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Melody Blackthorne, Dr. Future, Soraya Askath, Timothy Ritter, Aaron Gullius, Delaney Bowers, Olaf Phillips, and David Metcalf. With workshops by Kiki Dombrowski, Ren Collier, and Michael Hughes. Come join us in Nashville or online. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. Find out what everyone is talking about. We live our entire lives knowing that death awaits us. Many believe that some part of us endures. Eyewitnesses swear to have seen spirits of the dead haunting the living and even appearing during alien abductions. Is the UFO mystery reaching out to us from beyond the stars or from beyond the grave? This staggering implication demands not only scrutiny of the UFO phenomenon, but near-death experiences, ancient monuments, ley lines, the fey folk, cryptids, and more. I'm Joshua Cutchin. I'd like to invite you into the Ecology of Souls, a new mythology of death and the paranormal, a comprehensive theory of all things supernatural framed through the lens of our final transition. Join me as we journey from the depths of prehistory to the present, from the outer space of the cosmos to the inner space of the self. Ecology of Souls, Volumes 1 and 2, now available from Amazon in print and as a combined ebook. Welcome to the Ecology of Souls.